It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello, I'm Digby Jones, former Director General of the Confederation of British Industry, the CPI, and the former Trade Minister for the UK. On this programme, we're talking business and how business is preparing for Brexit. In this episode, we're looking at those businesses that are the brightest and the best, the innovators, the problem solvers, finding a vaccine for COVID, working out how to meet the country's net zero targets on climate change, finding cures and treatments for some of the enormous challenges that mankind faces in the coming decades. Life sciences... To you and me, that's anything related to plants or animals or human beings, including bugs, contribute over £70 billion each year to the UK economy and employs just under a quarter of a million people. If you add in tech, well, investments in that sector last year were £10 billion all on their own. And then if you add in all of the science, the artificial intelligence, the advanced manufacturing, innovation, which is taking an invention to market, All of that is science and technology. Welcome to the world of one of Britain's great 21st century sectors. Coming up, we're going to travel to Bristol. How does the university there plan to secure funding for cutting-edge research and development once we leave the European Union? Then we speak to Anita, a businesswoman, helping companies run drug trials, doing all her research and development with her colleagues, up on the science park in the northwest, we're going to hear from Alba. She's a chemist from Catalonia. She's come to the northeast to make her home there and work in research and development all over the United Kingdom. Very, very clever, hardworking people making Britain fit for purpose, highly competitive in tomorrow's world of science and technology. Welcome to Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones. Now, joining me throughout this programme today is Felicity Birch. She's the Director of Innovation and Digital at the CBI. And a warm welcome to you, Felicity. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me here. I, I, in my introduction, was explaining just how important this sector is to our country. Um, Just put this into context. You know, how does it all happen? There's a sort of big, large sort of bucket there that comes out at the other end. How does all that happen? Well, that's a that's a good question, Digby. And I think you're right. Um, actually, innovation um, is a big bucket of the UK economy, and we see uh, we see lots of examples of innovation in lots of sectors. You talked about sort of life sciences, um, manufacturing. Certainly, they're uh, they're leading the way, but we see it in all sorts of um, SMEs and, and large companies as well. And, and that would be different. In my ignorance, I'd see that as including sort of vaccines at one end and treatments at another and probably rocket fuel at another. Would that be right? Yeah, exactly. And isn't it exciting that, you know, amid all of the challenges that we've faced in the pandemic, UK innovation has absolutely been at the global forefront. We've all seen uh, the Oxford uh, vaccine on the on the news over the last few days. And of course, the other vaccines that are being developed 
globally, but all sorts of brilliant examples sort of popping up across the country at the moment. With Brexit happened and the end of transition coming just a few weeks from now, how is this field of science and innovation? How is it affected by it all? You know, the funding of it, the all of the different data, regulation, recruiting of talent, of course. How, how do you think the picture looks? The definition of, of, of being an innovator is someone who sort of sees a problem and, and tries to find a way that they can uh, solve it. But I do think that there are um, there are quite a lot of question marks that businesses and universities uh, in the sector are facing at the moment. So one of them you, you touched on is around access to funding. There's a big uh, European funding scheme called Horizon Europe, which businesses will and universities will want to be a part of. Um, there's also regional development funding, which helps with innovation um, as well. Uh, businesses are worried about the ability to transfer data overseas. It sounds sort of a bit invisible and, and esoteric, but actually almost every business is underpinned by the ability to share data with others uh, yes. these days. Uh, and yeah. then there's questions around regulation and, and access to, to skills and, and, and people. And, and, and do you hear, in, in, I mean, the CBI, one of the great things about it when I was director general, you know, the reach of it you know, into all different parts of the UK's business community of all sizes and, and, and sectors. Uh, are you hearing any nightmare stories or do you think that companies are by and large uh, prepared? They, they are ready or do you think, oh, no, they're not? I think the challenge with so many of these is that companies just don't really know what's coming down the line. We don't know whether we're going to be a part of schemes like uh, Horizon Europe. We don't know what the uh, data transfer scheme will uh, look like. Um, so actually, a lot of it is more kind of questions and uncertainty um, at the moment, rather than sort of lack of, of being prepared. Um, but I think it does it does make it difficult for businesses. And, and we have seen a couple of examples of of businesses sort of holding back uh, on investment in research and development. They're waiting to see uh, what the, the regime will be like. So let's start our conversations today as we journey around this richly diverse and talented country. And let's go to another of Britain's great cities. Let's go to Bristol. Uh, our first guest today is um, going to be uh, someone from Bristol University. He's Eric Litander. He's the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Global Engagement, absolutely up our street, Felicity, um, at the University of Bristol. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Digby. And now we're talking science and tech today. So can you give me just an idea of the sort of work that uh, you do at Bristol? Well, we're a, we're a comprehensive university, which means that our research spans, and indeed our teaching, spans uh, pretty much every one of the, of the various disciplines, whether it's uh, engineering, science, health science, arts and humanities. So we have a very broad spectrum of interest in, in research. And one of the things which we enjoy about our collaboration with Europe is that it really does span that whole spectrum of disciplines. And that's why it is important to our researchers. Uh, and the specific issue with the EU, I think, is the Horizon programme, isn't it? The funding that comes from Horizon. That's right. So we're currently members as, as a nation. We're members of what's called Horizons 2020, which is the current European research funding framework. Now, it, it draws to an end at the end of this year. And any funding which we receive up until the 31st of December uh, will stay in place and which will continue to be to be supported for the length of that program, because, of course, research programs often last uh, a number of years. So does that mean, Eric, that if they've signed off on, yes, we will fund this, although it might be another 10 years from now that it carries on, that will be safe? It's if you haven't got the signature on a bit of paper by the end of the year, is that right? That's right. So we've been encouraging our researchers to keep applying until the last minute. And we've had some fantastic examples just in the last few weeks of major grants that have been awarded. And the, the issue is that on the 1st of January, the successor program, which is called Horizons Europe, kicks in, and we are not eligible to participate in that um, in the same way. So the preparing for Brexit in terms of get your applications in now, lads, and make sure that you get the signature on a bit of paper and then we'll be all right, that, that's being done. The bit that is the issue is any money that we need to help our research across higher education in Britain after January 1st, where the signature isn't there, that will not be coming our way. Unless we unless we sign a deal with with Europe uh, before the the first of January, and of course association the UK's association with this successor program called Horizons Europe 
is one of the issues which is being discussed. It's not particularly for uh, optimists, but it is, of course, very important to institutions like mine. Yeah. And what do you feel will be the conclusion of that? Have you any idea? I am not overly optimistic. I think that there is goodwill uh, on all sides. uh, And there is a, a recognition that the collaboration that we have with Europe and the work that we've done with Europe is of great benefit to to UK universities. Uh, I think the issue is that we can't separate out that part of the arrangement. It's going to be lobbed in with the overall package of agreements uh, as part of the of the agreement. And if that doesn't get across the line, then we will have to make some different arrangement internally, nationally. And presumably the uh, UK government would write the cheque that you don't get from Brussels. Well, one of, our, one of our concerns has always been that if the commitment is made that we will fund our research, uh, the, the research that was currently funded through the contribution that we, would, that we made to Europe, if we are going to redistribute that within the UK instead, that there will be many other calls on that funding uh, on the Exchequer and that potentially that funding could get diverted to, to other causes. We know that there is uh, work in place to set up an alternative funding framework for the UK. Called, that they're calling it so far, they're calling it the Discovery Fund, uh, which, if it were to eventuate, would be very good news. It would be essentially a parallel fund to the European one. It would allow universities like mine to apply for funding to do research all around the world with Australian, American, Japanese, Chinese universities, which would be, which would be terrific. Uh, but, uh, of course, the funding only coming from one source makes it, I think, more vulnerable to to political influence. And we would be we would wanting to be reassured that it would be a genuinely independent fund. Yeah, that's a very good point. So how are you dealing with a post-January 1st world on the people front, you know, on the, the Europeans, the highly skilled ones who have always just walked in and helped and, and, and contributed to the research and made money? How are you doing with that after January the 1st? I think the the key issue has been one of our staff and colleagues feeling unsettled. So many of them are concerned about their futures. Uh, I myself am am European. I'm Swedish. I'm one of the two odd million Europeans who's had to apply for for the right to remain beyond uh, the middle of next year. You're very uh, welcome, my friend. Believe me. (laughs) That's very kind of you. Thank you. It's a a privilege to be here. and, And I... I absolutely love the work I do here. Uh, but I think the, the issue is that uh, universities like mine uh, have a sponsor license which allows us to sponsor highly skilled um, staff. So, so we're not overly concerned that we won't be able to bring them in. But of course, lower skilled and lower paid staff, whether they be technicians or other forms of support staff, make a huge contribution to the work that we do. They may not uh, necessarily qualify for our uh, sponsorship license. So we stand to face uh, staff shortages and skill shortages in the future because of this. So when I see the words global talent visa sorts all our problems, it does in terms of your highly skilled people you just described, but the lower skilled ones who are essential, of course, um, how would they how would you get hold of them then, Eric? Well, I think we would have to hope that there are other mechanisms which allow uh, people to come to this country. We know that education isn't the only industry that's going to be affected by this. I think we've we've heard from across the spectrum of industries that um, staff shortages will be a, will be a problem. And I think the thing which worries me the most is we all know that we're all going to have to put every effort behind the the recovery post pandemic, and universities, uh, without question, are going to play a very very important role. So anything which I think disrupts our ability to do the research that we need to provide the education that the country needs is going to uh, be detrimental in the long term. Well, I, I think you're representative of one of our unknown and yet star sectors, you know. I think, I think research-based universities in our country are some of the best in the world. And it's just a privilege for me to have you give me some time to just take me through a journey which... Uh, is is so enlightening and i wish you all the very very best thank you very much eric thank you well felicity a global champion sector and a guy who really did know what he was talking about and what did you think of that um lots of of great points uh in there i think there were two that that particularly struck me Uh, the first was um actually really great news to hear that uh, the university has still been able to get some major 
uh, awards from uh, from Horizon 2020. Um, I think the challenge is that we don't necessarily see that across the whole of the science and innovation sector. And certainly I've had uh, businesses say to me, they just they feel like there are fewer uh, calls coming through. They don't know when when someone hasn't picked up the phone. It's difficult to prove a negative. But just that sense that they're already starting to get um, less interest from uh, from European partners uh, and less sort of collaborative opportunities. And then the question is sort of what happens after that uh, after that 31st of December uh, deadline. Um, of course, um, as was mentioned, um, there is there is a lot of thinking currently being done by the by the business department about what a potential UK alternative uh, to the Horizon programmes would look like. But businesses, universities still don't know um, what that will be. So there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to making decisions about investment in uh, research and development at the moment. Thanks very much. Uh, we'll we'll think on with that. You're listening to Preparing for Brexit with Digby Jones on Times Radio. Let us move on. Let's move away from Bristol and let's head up into the northwest. So what happens when the research is ready to leave the university, the big bucket, if you like, and go out into the world? There are thousands of UK businesses that have spun out of research work and so many are set up on the science parks that populate the country these days. Alderley Park is one of those. It was established on the site of an old stately home, actually, and became the headquarters of the uh, giant ICI in the last century. And that, of course, merged into and became part of AstraZeneca. And they built a big facility at Alderley Park. In fact, I visited it when I was at the CBI. And then that, in turn, they moved all of that over to Cambridge and they then closed that. And it became a fabulous, uh, world-renowned science park And I was fortunate enough to go and visit that a couple of years ago. Marvellous work they're doing there. And today we're lucky. We've got the managing director of the Alderley Science Park, Kath Mackay. And she joins me now. So, Kath, what do you do at Alderley Park? Yeah, so I I lead on all aspects of the Science Park, um, setting the strategy, supporting the businesses on site, um, making sure they have the, the right infrastructure and support. And that can be access to facilities, access to business and innovation support and funding and access to science services. It's home to over 200 organisations working in life sciences, health and care, um, with over 2,000 employees on site. And and to give you a sense of some of those businesses, they're working in biotech, pharmaceuticals, contract research. There's expertise in drug discovery, cancer, uh, infectious diseases. It's obviously, uh, you know, the front of everyone's right minds at the moment. And they're working in cutting-edge areas such as um, medtech, diagnostics, artificial intelligence um, and we've got a rich kind of company base ranging from SMEs to multinationals and research institutes such as Medicines Discovery Catapult and, and Cancer Research UK's Manchester Institute and we're home to one of the recent government um, lighthouse laboratories too for, for COVID-19 testing. Isn't, isn't that fabulous? Can you take breath now? I, can, I, think, that's abso- <laughs> I think that's absolutely wonderful. I just was interested as you were just going through that the word talent kept sort of singing in my uh, in my mind i thought to myself well that's going to take a call on an awful lot of clever people so how, how do you get hold of them uh, you're right i mean it, the companies in the, in the campus uh, are growing and scaling and they those companies need people um at, at various levels apprenticeships graduates professionals they need vice presidents and site leads so there's various ways in which we do that we've got eight um yeah. universities within one hour radius so it's uh, those those universities are research intensive universities that uh, churn out a high number of graduates every year. So we've got strategic relationship with, with those yeah. universities. Yeah. So and, when you so when you go when you go fishing in those ponds um, on January the first, is that fishing expedition going to have to change in any way? I think we're going to have to work, work harder, um, if I'm honest with you. Um, so, yeah, international talent is absolutely important to UK life sciences. Um, the life science industries employ around, uh, I think it's around uh, 250,000 people in the UK. Um, wow. and 10% of Yeah, 10% of those are non-British EU citizens as well. So I think that there's... We're going to have to work a bit harder. Um, the, the movement of talent is of critical importance to the sector. Yeah, so, so if, if I was listening to this and I was one of those businesses thinking, well, I want to go and grab some quality talent out of a university, what do I need? You know, what do I need on January the 1st that I didn't need 
on December the 31st? In other words, how does it change for me going to try and get one? Well, there's now an immigration system so that there isn't the free movement of those people to feed into those companies and organisations. There's been a lot of work to to create that that immigration um, system. And so I think the companies need awareness that it, it, it exists. It exists. So um, there's a new points-based system for, for skilled workers that companies need to be aware of. Um, you know, they can't just bring people in. They've got to be aware of that system. Um, and we could provide support, but they need to be familiar with that system. And they need to be familiar with the fact that EU and Swiss nationals can stay, but they need to apply for, for settled status yeah. before, um, before June next year. So there are changes, but we can work with agencies to, to help navigate uh- that. Thank you. Uh, I'm about to dampen your enthusiasm by uttering the the horrendous word regulation. I can now hear all businesses across Britain (laughs) cringing and hiding behind the sofa. There are rules and regulations, aren't there, which for 40 odd years have come out of Brussels and we've complied. And that's going to change on January the 1st. And have small businesses on your science park had to change anything to comply with what's going to happen on January the 1st, or is it just more of the same? Um, I, I think the, there's an issue around, at the moment around information flow and getting to grips with information quickly. So you're right that the life science industry is a heavily regulated industry, and, and quite rightly so. All medicines, devices, um, digital med tech has to be regulated, and, and previously European regulations have been followed. Um, from the 1st of January, the, the MHRA, which is the, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Rela- Regulatory Agency, will be the UK's standalone um, regulator. Um, and what they've done is published um, a lot of new transition guidance and advice, which gives um, it, it kind of sets the framework for, for how businesses have to behave following um, the, the end of the transition period in January. And I think the real issue, if I'm honest with you, is I think it's getting to grips with the volume of information in, in quite a short time frame. Um, there are still areas where there is ambiguity, um, and that's causing some concern um, across businesses in, in the sector. For example, in terms of the, the Northern Ireland protocol, there are rules actually in placing devices in, in Northern Ireland um, companies and, and markets that will differ from those in, in terms in, in great um, in other parts of, of Great Britain. So, if you're in Northern Ireland, you you, you might be set with a, a change in that regulation, especially in its application. But if you were um, on a science park somewhere in mainland Britain, it's going to be called differently. It's going to have a different compliance regime, but actually what businesses need to do in a few weeks' time won't actually change. Is that what you're saying? There's a lot of ambiguity, and I think, I think that's the issue. Um, I think many businesses yeah. haven't got to grips with the information yet um, and are still unpicking it. Um, but they need to work through the, 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 the new compliance yeah. documents and, and guidance mm-hmm. that have been put on the website and, um, and work with the trade associations to, to get to grips with that. Well, one of the companies on the Alderley Science Park is Aptus Clinical. And one of the three founders, Anita Corley, who's a pharmacist with 22 years clinical research experience, joins me now. Anita, welcome. Hello, and, and you're on the uh, you're on the Science Park. And uh, yeah. you, were, you were probably listening to all that thinking, oh, does that include me? Um, I'm <laughs> yeah. uh, quite. So what? Do, what? So tell me, what does Aptus Clinical do? This is a niche clinical research organisation um, focused in oncology, rare diseases, and cell and gene therapies. And we, we, all three of us, were born out, came from the AstraZeneca um, stock, and, and Aptus was formed on the basis of the decision of AstraZeneca to move to Cambridge. So, so we. Um, we had lived the big pharma life of developing novel products for the market. Um, and we, we took that experience. We now support niche um, areas and biotech medium pharma to develop and deliver their clinical development programme. We've also recently got involved with some digital health initiatives uh, and particularly around the COVID piece. When you were talking about oncology, I... I... Uh, have been involved for many years uh, in one or two of their boards with Cancer Research UK. And I I always say to people, there are new things coming down the pipe every day. There are there are wonderfully clever people in our country discovering and developing new ways of dealing with that dreadful disease. And anybody listening to this who has or knows someone who has cancer, there are people like you, Anita, who are working on new ways of combating and dealing with it. And uh, I, I just applaud you for that. But it, it, 
part of the research on cancer is all about the analysis of data, the, the, the handling of it and the understanding of what someone else is doing somewhere else or indeed what happened two or three years ago to somebody else. How, how do you deal with the data in view of all the EU regulations on the handling of data, which is a nightmare? for businesses some of my businesses i can tell you it's an absolute nightmare gdpr and everything else but how do you deal with that when you're planning for brexit and you're doing all this fabulous work and you've got this these data regulations what's going to change on january the first for you so on january the first um we're, we're very fortunate that we did a huge exercise in when gdpr came along in in making sure we fully understood gdpr and were fully compliant I guess on January the 1st, those regulations get automatically transferred into UK law. For us, it's more about what happens after that, because um, what, once, once the UK adopts it as their own piece, the EU can obviously diversify, and so can the UK. I think the biggest difficulty we've got is that the UK will be classed as a third country, um, which means that we need different data regulations and agreements with our clients particularly, um, because you're right, data in clinical development is the biggest asset we have. Without it, we can't show the regulators the safety and efficacy of the, the drugs that we're developing. So, so we've got a big exercise of looking at all of our um, legal and commercial arrangements and agreements with our clients and our suppliers to look at how that third country status um, may, may change the agreements we've currently got on play, in place. Do you have a deadline for that? We have to look pragmatically across the, the, um, the, uh, the projects that are currently ongoing. Obviously, the, the projects we're discussing that aren't yet started, we, we will make sure that everything is in place ahead of them starting. So we need to assess which bits of our projects this is going to impact. So what we've done is prioritise those projects that have a European element and focus and make sure that they are ready for jumper. Yeah, and over over a period of time, custom and usage, I suppose, it, 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 there yeah. is going to be a different regulatory regime. And how will that, uh, do you think, there'll be a contrast between dealing with somebody in the European Union and dealing with somebody in, I don't know, Picket Canada. I mean, there will be a difference, won't there? There will be a difference. I probably have to say that, um, and, and Cass kind of hit on this earlier, but regulation is just part of clinical development. It, if, you are a, if you are a clinical developer, regulation doesn't scare you. What scares you is not knowing what could change in those regulations and how, to, how we might need to apply that change. And Cass right, there's a bit of a blind spot of information and decisions haven't yet and it, and and i guess every every business listening to this will be thinking if i want to go and fish in the, a, a labor market of 520 million people after january the first it's going to be different and 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 yeah. how do you think you'll go about making sure you can if we'd have had this conversation this time last year i'd be talking to you about do, do we expand into Europe? Do we have an office in Europe? That kind of thing. I think we're now being a little bit more cautious in our approach. And what we've decided to do uh, is actually look to the European Union and organisations already set up there to try and partner with them and work with them in order to achieve the, the resource and the skill level we need. Uh, Anita, thank you very, very much. Um, Kath, you were listening to that and Aptus Clinical. Are they at the top end of preparedness and understanding of everything that's coming down the pipe? Or would you say most of your uh, companies and businesses on, on the Science Park are much the same? I like Anita's words. You know, regulation itself isn't actually an issue. And, and companies in the sector are incredibly agile and, and, and smart and able to, to get to grips with, with new information and adjust their working practices accordingly. I think the issue is it's the fact that there's still so much ambiguity um, and there's a lot of information to get to grips with very, very, very quickly. Companies um, yeah, that they're used to having to fundraise um, and, and make that money last and that they're used to getting to grips with, with challenges. Um, so I, I actually think that the industry and the companies within that industry are incredibly resilient um, yes. and, and ultimately you know, we'll get to grips with this. Well, I, I can't think of a sector that's better prepared. I can't think of a more 
global excellent champion that we have and i can't think of a better place to show it off than uh, alderley science park so uh, to kath mckay the managing director uh, up at alderley and also to anita corley thank you for your time and uh, good luck in all you do thanks very much thank you thank you one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Well, there's a success story and full of optimism. Felicity, what did you think of that? Well, if, if ever you wanted an example of the, of the diversity um, and, and excellence of the UK innovation base, you found it there at Alderby Park. And, uh, and uh, Digby, you and I were chatting beforehand and I mentioned I haven't visited. It's clearly going to be on my list uh, for after, after COVID uh, restrictions end. Um, there were lots of lots of really great points um from, from both those speakers as well i think one of the things that struck me um was how uh, for life sciences in particular uh and, and medical research uh, regulation is kind of part of the, the day job for them um but one of the things that we are uh hearing some concerns about is that actually the uk um as a member of the eu was was able to lead the way um when it came to a lot of the regulatory decisions that were made um, and one of the big questions, I think, for us sort of um, as an economy is how can we continue to, to set the agenda on innovation uh, regulation outside of outside of the EU? Uh, and there is some opportunity for the UK to set the tone here. There's some big uh, strategies on things like AI um, coming down the line. But being outside of uh, Horizon Europe is a risk because that's where the new innovation is, is happening, the international collaboration. Uh, is happening and, and very often the regulations are being set as well. So being a business in Britain looking at the future in terms of regulation, uh, it's a rosy picture because we're in charge of it or it's not so rosy because we're in charge of it? <laughs> well, isn't, isn't, that always the, uh, isn't that always the question? I think, I think uh, it's, it's a bit complicated, um, if I'm completely honest. There are, you should be there a politician. Are... You're ducking the question. <laughs> No, well, well, give me give me a chance. There are there are some opportunities. I really think the UK has the opportunity uh, to set the tone on things like AI and uh, data sharing. But being outside of the EU, being outside of some of these big scientific uh, collaborations, does pose a risk of being there right at the start of the conversation. You're listening to Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones, here on Times Radio. And so let's move on, and we're off to Newcastle, to Litox a company which develops and produces specialist treatments for mouth cancer. Really important work. And they have highly skilled staff drawn from all over the world, including the European Union. Dr Sam Whitehouse is the CEO there, and Dr Alba Pujol 
is a chemist originally from Catalonia in Spain who's made her home in the northeast. You're both welcome. Hi. Hi. Now, Sam, let's start with you. Tell me a little bit about Litox. How did it come out of Durham and when did you do that? So um, the, the project itself started probably nearly 10 years ago. Our, uh, our CTO, a professor in Durham, Andy Whiting, and he's been working on, on these molecules. He was looking at, um, at neuroactives originally and purely by accident stumbled across the fact that these could be used in, in other ways. We got together and, and really started to flesh out what the company was about, where we could put the technology um, my CSO, Carrie Ambler, is also a professor in Durham, and the, the three of us basically uh, spent a, a, nearly a couple of years um, figuring out where best to put the technology. And the way, the way to describe this best, I think, is you can imagine that if you, if you suffer from uh, an oral cancer, so early stage, you go to your dentist, your doctor, they, they think there's something wrong, and you might be pushed towards surgery within a month, and that might include losing part of your tongue your cheek, your gum, and through that surgery. So it's pretty devastating for the patient. And what, what we've developed or are developing is essentially a, a gel, much like a, a Bongella gel. And you apply this topically to the area that you want to treat. And the drug is non-toxic until you put a, a light on it. And this light is similar to what the dentist would use to cure a filling and it will kill the cancerous cells underneath it. Um, and we, we're fairly early in this journey. You know, we're still we're still doing all the preclinical testing, but we're we're planning for in the next in the next year or so to work with the clinicians in the north, in Liverpool, in uh, Sheffield, to actually bring this into the clinic to start the clinical trials, um, and hopefully bring accelerate this towards market over the over the coming years. Do, do you know? As I was just listening to you, then I bet every listener of this didn't even know you existed. And yet you're a global champion. I'm, I'm serious about this, that we need as a nation to understand in these uncertain times, whether it's COVID or whether it's Brexit, to just understand there is so much amazing work being done in parts of the country and indeed in areas of the economy that people don't understand. So when they get down and they think, oh, you know, the world's ending and everything else, uh, you are tomorrow's business. You are you are exactly where this nation should be. You, you, you've got your 14 people. You, you're a bit mm -hmm. United Nations-ish. You, you've got a CEO from the USA. You've got a couple of scientists from Europe. Um, looking forward, because we're talking international talent here, aren't we, and international reach, um, mm. what will you be doing about recruiting after January the 1st? I'm a big believer in, in people and developing people, um, you know, and, and whether that's pulling the best people you know, these are incredibly highly trained scientists, engineers, um, you know, biologists, whatever they are. Um, and so, you know, if we can pull people in from, you know, wherever they are, Europe, America, that's great. I think also that there is a responsibility to develop talent locally as well and give people the opportunity to develop themselves from here. Is it a problem? Um, you know, I've done a lot of work. Um, you know, in Singapore in the past, you know, some um, some very highly talented people in the institutes and, and industry out there as well. And maybe that becomes an opportunity. I have I have friends that would love to come and, you know, and engineers from there that would love to come and, you know, and, and do placements, work here, things like that. So it would be nice to think that we could do that. I think it would be a real shame if people felt like they couldn't come and work here or that yes. you know, it, was, it was difficult to make that transition. Well, someone who's made that transition is Dr. Alba Pujol. Welcome to the show. Uh, what brought you to the UK? Why, why, why did you choose the UK? So, yeah, when I was uh, about to graduate, so I got the opportunity to come to the UK to pursue my PhD. And what drove me to come here was the UK is well known for like the high um, standard education yeah, the country has. It's got a very high standard system as well as with the research. And it's also like a very diverse community, which I think that that's really important in research as well. And, and what do you do and what do you actually do at Litox? So uh, at Litox now I'm a research chemist. So what we do, I'm one of the chemists that is working on developing these new compounds that will go, as Sam said before, into this novel treatment for all cancers. I, I, you see, I'm one of those people who wish that on the day after the referendum, 
the prime ministers came up and grabbed every single person like you in our country and said you're welcome stay life will be fine don't worry you know because you are you are a supreme talented resource for our country uh, I, I think we finally got there i think that now after years of worry and stress and politicking i think we've got there but does your status change after the 1st of January? Have you have you had to do anything? Have you had to jump through hoops or has it been an easy path? So far it's been easy. I've just applied for a pre-settled status. And that settled status is a, is a document. And does that give you the right to stay for as long as you want? Uh, yes, for now it's until like 2024. And then I can apply to like a settled one. And, and do you do that as an individual or did Sam have to help you? In other words, does an employer have to underwrite that or do you do it just as an individual? I just did it as an individual. Original. Yeah. And so, so businesses listening to this, if, they, if they've got talented people from the EU who were here... Uh, are here but were here before uh, just check that they've got the right bit of paper which they will get but they've got to have it is that right yeah yeah and and just want just on one one other part albert are you kept aware of the global significance of what you as an individual do i mean you're you're from catalonia you're working in the north of england i bet it's a damn sight colder than it is in catalonia and and you you what you're doing has such global significance so do you ever feel that another country could do it better? I, I want to know whether we're doing everything we can for you, really. Is there more that Britain could do for you? So for until now, like at this stage in my career, I feel that coming to England has been really beneficial from these opportunities I had otherwise that had helped me grow as a scientist, yeah. as a person. And, I mean, so far it, hasn't, it has been okay to stay here. But I think that... My only concern is that if it starts to get difficult to come to the UK, people might get discouraged for it and could go to other countries. Well, if there is any politician listening to this, you heard it from the horse's mouth. Make sure that talented people are always welcome. Alba, thank you for giving me your time. Sam, you heard that. Um, You're going to be growing and developing and recruiting more talent uh, from all over the world. Uh, you're going to be fishing in a European pond, I guess. Yeah, certainly. I I think there's talented people. I mean, if you look at where research is conducted, where these people are, are, you know, really learning their skill sets, you know, I've I've worked with talented European people throughout my career, whether that's, you know, in my PhD when I was in Sheffield, whether that's, you know, the the first business I, uh, I, I was thrown into doing medical devices or you know my last business had 110 people in it from all over the world um and you know these are incredibly talented highly educated people and you only get that that level of sophistication if you like through you know proper research investment and we're if we're benefiting from that whether that's you know german investment french investment american investment yeah, these people bring all of those skills with them. Do you need to prepare in any other way for a post-January world in that respect? You know, to get that message across, to go and get global people, global talented people from Europe. Is there something you should be doing you're not? Or is there something you've had to do that you didn't have to do? I, I think, like you say, I think profile is important. You know, we're... We're moving into the stage next where we're going to need talented clinicians and people that want to help us run clinical trials. Um, you know, and these are uh, high, highly skilled, highly in-demand people as well. And in terms of trade and things like that, we've been preparing for this for a little while. You know, we manufacture one of our devices in, uh, in Singapore. We sell through uh, a company in America who's based in Milwaukee. The product never actually hits our shores. Uh, and that was slightly uh, a uh, an unfortunate position that we were planning that in the in the development stages of that product. Um, but I have you know friends and colleagues who run businesses with you know two hundred products that need recertified and and a notified person to sell, and that's a challenge. I think for new companies it's easy for established companies with hundreds of product lines. You know the the burden of that administrative um effort is is quite something is there something that uh, one of one of our listeners could take away thinking yeah i should be doing that i I think that the 
first of all, the conversation with your staff who who may have to apply is quite important. Um, you know, because it can be quite an emotional um, thing to actually have to apply to stay where you are. Um, I think in terms of knowing, you know, the regulatory pathway, we already work in a regulated environment, so we're quite used to paperwork. But make sure that, you know, you have the regulatory approvals, you have, you know, a, a qualified person in the country you're selling to, and that is, is set up. And I think, you know, you can never plan for every eventuality, but you, you can sort of make sure that, you know, you're not going to get any or any business interruption. So whether that's, you know, stock levels for key components or, you know, especially in, in laboratories at the moment because of the pandemic, there's long waiting times for certain equipment that you might need. You know, get your name down and, and think through what you're going to need in 2021 just to be sure. Some people at the moment, you know, we're coming towards the end of November. So, you know, this is... Uh, <coughs> This is not a lot of time if you haven't prepared already. Yeah, but, and on staffing, um, the emotional chat about, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to fill in a form and apply to do what you're already doing mm. is emotional. On staffing, is there anything else? Well, I, th- I think, you know, if you are planning on recruiting, you know, then that may be a, a case of making sure that you're, you're, you are prepared to do that. Uh, often with these types of businesses, growth is, is sort of, stepwise because you get an investment you want to grow through that but i think there's that sort of who do you work with now who who are your collaborators are the key people in in teams that you're collaborating with that you may have had your eye on that you could you know make an offer to bring to the bring to your business all of those things could could really help prepare you but i think ultimately we'll see how how painful this is and hopefully if you've done your homework it won't be quite as painful as, as it could be I'm an optimist, you know. Yeah, and I can hear, Sam, do you know I could hear the fingers being crossed across our country. You're you're quite right. Um, Sam Whitehouse and uh, Albert Pugol, thank you so much. Very, very grateful to you. And uh, I wish you all the very best. And, And Alba, thank you particularly for bearing your soul to us about what has been emotionally a difficult time. And never forget, you're very welcome in our country. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Still with me is Felicity Birch. She's the Director of Innovation and Digital at the CBI. So you're a business. It's January the 1st, 2021. How do you get out into the European Union and recruit the talent such as Alba at Sam Whitehouse's business? How do you go about it? What do you do? Uh, Great question, Digby. And I think it's really important that businesses are tackling this um, from quite a practical perspective. Um, So right um, from the 1st of January, we're going to have this points-based system. um, And that is going to be uh, a big change for for businesses. It marks the end um, of freedom of movement. So businesses do not need to start thinking about uh, this a bit differently. Um, It will be complex. Um, Only 8% of businesses that we've spoken to that said they thought they were going to use the new system uh, felt like they uh, they understood it and they were prepared for it. Um, so I think a couple of things that I would just recommend businesses are aware of is that they know that they will need to become licensed sponsors uh, and that they'll need to secure visas. And as we heard uh, in the conversation just there, uh, time is also running out to encourage existing uh, EU employees to apply for the EU settlement scheme. So I think it is about familiarising yourself with the new system now. And I hope you'll forgive me uh, if I do a, a small plug um, for a report that uh, we've just published, uh, CBI alongside Deloitte, called To The Point, which is very practical and will guide uh, employers through this new system. Um, I hear a bit about this global talent visa, um, which sounds an incredibly important name. What, what, what is that? So the global talent visa so it sort of does what it says on the tin in terms of being a route in for very highly skilled uh, individuals into the UK. Uh, so it's important in that it, you know, it will help uh, bring over the brightest and the best, but it's definitely not sort of hold of the immigration system. And is that from anywhere in the world, including Europe? Uh, yeah. Thank you. The, the, it seems to me, in my ignorance, there are, there are three things. If there's a, an Alba situation, you know, Alba Pujol, who has to actually basically apply to do what she's doing already, then there's the global talent visa for the really high flyers. But then there's the points-based system for the lower school workers who are essential, but they're on a different tier. Am I right? There are those three three things. I think that's, 
a really good summary and I think quite helpful way for businesses to think about this. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, every business listening to this, just do a little bit of a people and skills audit on uh, next next time you're in and just think, have I got it right? Because from January the 1st, in a way, it'll be a bit too late and you'll lose your competitive edge. Let's move on. And so we uh, carry on our journey uh, around the country and around this amazingly important sector uh, in our economy, science and innovation and life sciences. And we come to Leeds. We come to a company called Brandon Medical. It's been around for some 70 years and it makes equipment for medical application and, and especially theatre lighting in uh, operating theatres in, in our hospitals. Uh, Adrian Hall is the chief operating officer. He uh, is there uh, joining me now. And thank you for coming along, Adrian. No problem. No. Glad to join you, Digby. Um, just tell me a little bit about the, the business has been around a long time. And what does it do now? Yeah, we uh, concentrate on manufacturing equipment for the clinical areas of the hospital. So it's all the, equi- the specialist equipment for the operating room, such as, as you say, operating lights and uh, medical gas systems and power systems and uh, and increasingly the AV equipment that's in the modern operating theatre. And also uh, the similar equipment in the intensive care. So uh, very important just at the moment. And the company's been in your your uh, family's ownership since 1993 it's been around a long time that's right yes uh, we came out of uh, you know as young graduates my brother and myself and uh, decided that we actually wanted to work in a slightly uh, more creative environment so we we bought this uh, uh, quite uh, um, uh, small business at the time and have spent our careers uh, basically growing it into a professional world-class medical device business yes so January the 1st is nearly upon us. Here you are in a sector so vital to our economy. Is it, has it been looming as something that's dark and dreadful on the horizon? What have you had to do about it? Well, I think like uh, everybody in uh, uh, in business and in manufacturing, we've uh, we've been looking at this through several waves of expectation. Uh, so uh, actually, as we, we now face uh, it, it happening on uh, January the 1st, you know, I actually think we're quite well prepared. I'm not a chicken little character that I don't think the sky's about to fall in. Now, what I'm not sure about is whether that is because we are, you know, particularly well prepared or good at what we do, or whether it's because we're lucky to be in an environment that is a little bit more predictable and a little bit more sheltered from the change. So on January the 1st, is there anything that you have had to do otherwise you couldn't trade? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, like everybody, we've had to look at our um, our paperwork uh, to uh, for because we are a major exporter. 50% of what we produce goes overseas. So we've had to actually look at uh, our paperwork and uh, our, our systems for exporting to make sure that we're now declaring all of the custom codes and uh, all, uh, the information that's going to be required to export into the uh, into the EU. However, that's something that actually, you know, we've been doing to the rest of the world, you know, forever. So really, all it means is that the 27 more countries uh, enter into being treated the same way as the other 70-odd countries that we export to. And to be honest, most of that is actually handled by our freight forwarders who, uh, you know, when we've uh, finished manufacturing a product for a customer, at the end of the day, you know, we ring up the man with the van who comes and collects that and, uh, and takes it to either Sheffield or... Uh, Sri Lanka and uh, you know it's actually that character who's actually going to be doing taking care of a lot of the the export uh, regulatory uh, issues for us. We have had in medical uh, as a medical device manufacturer there is uh, it's a a highly regulated uh, area as uh, as you'd expect Uh, so uh, that has had some impact we're lucky that uh, the we've been enlightened enough to adopt the uh, the European and CE marking regulation into UK law. So for us, not a great deal changes there because that's accepted to be, you know, the world gold standard. Um, but what we have had to do is establish a um, known contact point for the EU within the EU. So we've actually had to uh, uh, establish a regulatory office in Ireland uh, which is uh, so we have to pay for that service for somebody to act as our known contact point in the EU. What, tell me what a known problem. tell me what a known contact point is. I don't understand that. 
basically what we have to uh, is basically uh, pay somebody to act as uh, our representative in the EU. So if, say, we were to have a product recall and we stop answering the phones, there is a, a legal representative for us actually in uh, Ireland, which uh, the regulatory bodies of the EU can contact uh, on and our that could, be a, could that be a lawyer or an accountant or something? Or? Yeah, it's, it's actually a, a regulatory specialist, but it's very much that sort of person who, uh, yeah. who uh, you know, operates like a... Uh, like a, a postal contact point, yeah. if you like. And, they do, and they're presumably doing that for quite a few companies. Uh, yes, although I have to say not everybody has realised this. Um, and so there's a bit of a rush for people uh, to uh, to establish the, these regulatory contact points in our arena. Interestingly, what's even less recognised is that European uh, businesses uh, will need to have uh, one of these regulatory contact points in the UK if they want to be selling... Uh, medical devices into the UK. So we're having to speak to some of our partners and customers and saying, well, what have you done about this? Uh, yeah. um, you know, and, you know, I bet, I bet you very few of them have done anything. I bet you they yeah. see this all one way. Absolutely. There's a, a, a good deal of arrogance, I'm afraid, on behalf of the other side, is that they yeah. think Brexit is our problem. Yeah. Uh, when actually, of course, you know, business is all about a two-way street. So there's basically, uh, you know, working together to produce a product, take it to market, and uh, and create commercial opportunities. So, and, and are you having to take some of your European friends and say, "Oi, come on, open up here, get yourself a contact point here." Are you having to encourage them and do it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm afraid to say, um, quite a lot of them are not listening to that. Uh, but that's just. Uh, starting. Um, I, I would just leave you with this. In one of the companies I chair, we've been investigating the increased charges that the freight forwarders want to charge us. We're finding that they're using a little bit like, um, do you remember the year 2000, the millennium bug was going to end the world and they charge a lot of money. And there's been a lot of stuff on Brexit and a lot of stuff on COVID where a lot of people have exploited the situation. And we're finding that freight forwarders are saying, oh, well, you know, oh, dear me, lots more money here. And they're trying to put their charges and every business listening to this have a really good look if you use freight forwarders just have a good look at whether they're trying to use the situation to charge you more money when as uh, you, you just said yourself adrian that that you know you're just moving it from one box you already have been using and you move it into another box you've already been using so uh, just be careful with those freight forwarders because they might just be charging you money to uh, make a bit more money themselves and not actually deliver any extra great service, to be honest. Yeah, uh, that's quite right, Digby. But at the end of the day, it is that is a marketplace and people that have been unprofessional enough to take advantage of that, um, that will work itself out uh, in, in the marketplace as people compete for business. And, uh, you know, actually, you know, an extra 50 or 100 bucks on the price, certainly for us, isn't going to be the thing that uh, changes whether somebody's going to buy our equipment or not. And, and and it's only a short-term issue, I think, as people end up fighting for business. Well, yeah, the competitive element of the market might just sort that out. You're quite right. Yeah. Well, Adrian, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I wish you and indeed Brandon Medical all the very best in this brave new world. And thanks for giving me some time. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Well, you're listening to Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones, here on Times Radio. And there was an example of somebody who does actually give the not impression, but also the factual analysis that uh, he is definitely ready for January the 1st. But uh, Felicity, would you say that that is uh, uh, typical? Or would you say that, frankly, uh, he, he's a rare specimen and most people aren't? Well, Digby, I think that story is a good example of why I would never uh, bet against a UK innovator. Um, unfortunately, I think for, for some businesses, the picture is a bit more mixed just because so many questions remain, particularly uh, around things where where they're reliant on uh, EU funding. Um, but, you know, many businesses are much more prepared now than they were uh, a couple of years ago. The end of the transition period isn't going to be a surprise for them. But I think it's I think what's really critical for businesses now is that we do get a deal and some of those remaining question marks are tied up. And so if you, you analyse everything that you've heard today, what are you going to take away from this? What do you think of what you've heard and the businesses and the stories from universities to cancer research through to making bits for hospitals? What, what, what are your takeaways? 
Well, I mean, first and foremost, it's a reminder of why it's such a privilege to be working with UK innovators, because there is so much brilliant uh, innovation that's happening right now. It's it's groundbreaking. Um, in terms of the kinds of actions that people are taking, I think one thing that really struck me is just how valuable it is to talk with other businesses and universities and sort of hear how they've been preparing for some of this and the actions that they've taken uh, forward. Um, I think making sure you're talking to your partners uh, on the EU side of things as well. If you are collaborating with people in the EU, have you talked to them about sort of how the relationship's going to work uh, for, uh, going forward? And I suppose the final thing is just making sure that you do familiarise yourself with new systems, particularly uh, the immigration system, because we know that bringing in uh, people from the EU is is important for, for many in the innovation and research sectors. And, and are there any signposts, you know, signposts that they businesses can follow over the next few weeks? Absolutely. Well, I'll get one more plug in, uh, Digby. The CBI has a transition hub um, and I would highly recommend businesses take a look at that. We'll be updating it as soon as we have, uh, well, with all of the latest information as soon as we have it. And that's available to all businesses. That's good news. And and, and can I just say thank you, Felicity, actually. You, you've, your analysis has been first class and there'll be loads of smaller businesses around the country thinking, well, uh, we've learned something today. Uh, to Felicity Birch, the uh, CBI Director of Innovation and Digital. Uh, thank you and good luck on January the 1st, a brave new world. Well, that's it for this episode of Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones. My thanks to all our guests today, some fabulous stories and wonderful examples. And in particular, I'd like to thank Felicity at the CBI for joining me. Uh, very, very useful stuff there. Now, in the next episode, I'm going to ask the questions, how do you get your goods across the border from the 1st of January? That's not something that's had to trouble us at all if it was coming from the EU for the last 40 odd years. And yet it all changes in just a few weeks time. And how do we trade with this great trading nation? And how do we make sure we can carry on being so next year? We'll be talking transport, travel, getting through the border. Please join me then for preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones, here on Times Radio. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.